My guest this episode has had an illustrious career in the live music industry. From humble beginnings in County Waterford to running one of the best-known music venues in the entire world, London's The Mean Fiddler. If you don't know his name, you'll know his work. Reading and Leeds festivals, Benicassim, and of course the mighty Glastonbury at one stage too. This is Vince Power. You've said in the past, Vince, that money was never everything to you. And it was never your motivation. As a promoter who's had it all, lost it all, and is on the path with your latest venture to hopefully regaining it, what is it that lights that fire in you? I don't know, really. I think it's, it, it's just in my, in my makeup, really. It's just it's what I am. I, uh, I want to do things all the time. I always want to get up in the morning and get out. And, you know, I had the opportunity to, to get out, and I did get out for about two weeks. And uh, then I just came back in again. But, yeah, I mean, money was never been it. Been, been more of an issue when I had it, so I didn't when I didn't have it. So, I saw you mention before once in an interview that the want to keep on moving is almost based on insecurities. That enough is never enough, and you no, kind of want I, to add more I, to it. I think no, I think that's 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 how I felt. I felt like it's uh, doing stuff. Once you're doing stuff, you're doing stuff, and uh, it gives it fills up your mind. But it's it's a sort of it's probably a gross insecurity. That's why I say it is like uh, you're never secure enough to stop. You came from very humble beginnings, of course, a cottage in Kilmacthomas in County Waterford, fourth of 11 children, four of whom sadly died at childbirth. When you got on that boat in your mid-teens, were you the first of the family to make that trek across the sea? The very first, yes. Yeah, my, uh, my mother put me on the train in Kilmacthomas to Waterford and uh, then I caught the boat to Ross, I caught the train to Rosslare and then uh, the boat to Fishgate and my aunt met me in Paddington. And when she lived in Hemel Hempstead with her with her husband, which was a he was a Barry from Kill, and um, that's where I came to. That was uh, I came. I left the the technical school in Dungarvan. Yeah, I was there for a couple of years. I think it was maybe it could be more. But uh, and then I uh, just went. I didn't. My mother got my got me. I think my mother got me this scholarship in Galway to train to be an artificial inseminator. A very different path. <laughs> than the one you did take I, I actually never would like to say to my mother but I had to say no on this occasion that I really didn't want to be a, want to be a qualified artificial inseminator What was the lure that England held for you over being an artificial insemination specialist? It was more of a the, the, it was more of a thing to get out rather than the lure I didn't know what it was I mean I, all I saw was that uh, what any young Irish person would have seen now we didn't have television and stuff but I would have seen uh, magazines and stuff and you know the streets of it's been said before the streets are paved with gold and, uh, and all this business but uh, you know I just I had expectations that the buildings were bigger and the place was brighter and but I, I was when I the train pulled into Paddington I felt that uh, oh this place looks awful because just, the train was slow coming in and there was all these buildings uh, backs of houses with clotheslines and stuff and hanging around and I thought well that this Paddington I remember the conductor saying we're coming into Paddington and that was after many hours I don't know it's probably seven or eight hours on the train and coming from uh, Fishguard What year was this exactly would we be talking would this be in the middle of the swing in 63 Okay and was London swinging as you expected it to be Not really at the time it wasn't because I I went straight to Hemel Hempstead in Hertfordshire because that's where my aunt lived and my uncle and my, my uncle's wife, which I called my aunt, uh, they lived in Hamlet State, and they were building the motorway then. That was the first motorway that they weren't building, but they, lots of Irish went to, to Hamlet State. It was a new town, 
it was off the M1, which was just being built. So my uncle had two houses and he had boarding lodgings and stuff. His name was uh, Barry, slapped my mother. We are all from Kill and near Kilmac Thomas. Willie Barry. <coughs> Willie Barry. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I that wasn't really. I, my aunt got me a job very quick. She got me a job in Woolworths. I was a trainee, uh, trainee floor, floor walker, whatever I called what it means. You had two jobs. You make sure that the, all the actual places were stocked up with the stuff that was selling, and to make sure you're watching pickpockets. So you had to tell the security or whatever, tell the manager when you. I didn't like it really. I, I tried to stay there. I didn't stay there for long, maybe three months. I can't remember exactly how long. But I think I was, uh, I didn't fit in at all. I didn't feel that, uh, I, I felt, you know, it was very, uh, very sort of, uh, I don't know what the word for the prejudice. I mean, the people were very prejudiced. It was like. Of course, this would have been like no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, that kind of. Very much so, and I kept coming in with an accent and an Irish accent. It was like, yeah, and coming, uh, not so. I was always surprised because I, I didn't know what, how, to, I didn't know what it was to be, to be prejudiced or, or uh, I didn't know what it was to be racist or sexist or whatever. I just come straight from, from Balashunak and Kilmac Thomas. So <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have any. I didn't know that you, the, the way. People of color were treated, you know. They were like they were, the Irish were treated like people of color. They're different, and I remember the, the departmental manager calling me and saying he was always calling me Paddy, and I said my name is Vince. So in, in the end, I then he never stopped calling me Paddy, but I sort of then didn't uh, answer him. So I, he would be shouting at me, shouting at me down the aisle, and I would pretend I didn't hear him. And then he <laughs> got really angry. He'd have to come all the way down. And I said, "Oh, sorry, I didn't realize who you were calling and all that." So I was. I was aware at the time, even though I was young. Woolworths wasn't the only job. You also worked in McVitie's and uh, also Heinz, I believe. Yeah, Heinz, McVitie's. I did, after Woolworths, then I did, I did all these different jobs. Uh, I came down to London. I came down to London and a chap called Tom O'Brien, which was from also from Balashunak, Balahossa, uh, he came over. So we got a room together and we... Uh, in Kilburn, I think the first one was in Kilburn, and in a basement. It was good. It was, uh, it was a big old house, music house, lots of uh, West Indians and Africans in there, great music, and their music that I was exposed to, like the 60s music and reggae and stuff. And that was great. I remember like being good. But I was working in McVitie's and uh, Wall's Ice Cream, and I got sacked from Wall's Ice Cream <laughs> falling asleep. <laughs> you know, it was night, night shift. Uh, the, I think the chuck ices were going into the box without wrappers. I believe it was demolition and uh, abandoned furniture that kind of gave you your first massive success in business. Well, I'd been through many shops in a short time, many jobs in a short time, and I didn't realise that, uh, I did then realise that I wasn't actually made to work for people. So I, I, when I went on to this demolition site, there was an Irish contractor, a man from Kerry, very nice man. He took me under his wing and... I started taking slates off roofs. You know, there was a big, there was a big, uh, big demolition thing going on in London at that time, and they just pulling down houses and putting up this dreadful, what turned out to be ghettos. Uh, everybody wanted, to, but so a lot of people left stuff in the houses, and I kept thinking, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, I actually bought this, not bought the stuff, got the stuff free, and then I bought an old van and I started like. 
advertising it in shop windows, newsagent windows, like, you know, chairs for sale, table for sale. And then I got the hang of it, and I started, as it, as it went, I actually educated myself. I bought books about furniture and different periods of furniture and all that. And uh, in the end, I got myself a little shop in the Harrow Road, and I got a van. I got a license and I got started buying and selling. I, I remember paying £25 a week for the shop. And I then I was happy. I was like, uh, I could, uh, you know, I was my own boss then. I used to have to pay the, the yellow pages. I'd have uh, adverts in there. For, like, when you look, look at the yellow pages, you'd think I was a huge dealer, big, big. Uh, the pages were very big and I was an expert in everything. But I found out if I didn't know, I, I could sell the, sell the call on to somebody else. So, I, you know, I did quite well. And I had a stroke of luck where I found a painting in Kenton. And that was, to make a long story short, uh, I took it into Sotheby's because I put it in the shop window, my old shop window. There was no, uh, I said to George, the old, the old boy who was working for me, I said, George, don't sell it. Just see what you can get, see what they offer for it. So by the time I came back, they'd offered something 300 quid, which was a huge amount of money then. I think it cost me a tenner. <laughs> So I took it into the cellar base and they said, oh, Mr. Power, you've got something there. I think, you know, because I used to go in there quite often thinking I'm going to find it, a constable or a turner or something like that. And uh, then they said, they came out after 15 minutes and they said, well, you've got a, a, a Dutch master here. It's like, we think we can sell it for seven and a half grand. And it had originally cost a tenner, you think? Yes, that's was my break. I got, that was the biggest amount of money I've ever had, I ever will have. <laughs> in my mind then but you know went from one furniture shop into a chain I believe how many did well, you have the chain started quite uh, I mean it's a, it, it kind of mimics uh, it, the music business kind of mimics what happened in the furniture business I was never happy with one so then I got out of that money I got a shop in Cricklewood which was a better area and busier and I made some money there and I got another shop in uh, Kilburn and then I Got lots of shops around different Shepherd's Bush and places. And eventually, I, because I couldn't get enough second-hand furniture, I just started buying new furniture from, from mail-order catalogs, people who were living uh, furniture through mail-order houses. And that, uh, that was very successful. Then I, then I decided I would get pop-up shops from shops that were empty. So I had, there was times when I had, some of the, sometimes I would have 30 shops, 20 shops. Wow. So I spend my time going around, just getting them stocked up, going up to places like Liverpool, to the mail order houses, picking out stuff, getting it delivered. And that worked really well because I used to use, just to, in those days, a big catalog. I used to use a catalog for uh, to show people what the real price was. Like You buy this on the catalog and it costs you 600 quid and I will sell it to you for 200 pounds. Or I don't know exactly if that's the amount, but it was... It was greatly reduced. So we used to have a great time selling stuff. And I found that quite easy, really, because there was endless supply. It's a bit like, it was just another version of Amazon today, you know, Mm -hmm. things that are delivered, you can send them back. But they never went back out of the warehouse. They they would never send out stuff that was already sent out before Mm because they never risked being damaged or whatever. So everything that was on 14 days trial, it came back in and then, they would sell it to people like me. So it was kind of like for returns. It was kind of like B-grade stock yes. to an extent. Yeah, well, to just put some of us brand new. They just didn't let the color. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there was a little nick on the something, you know, but it was, I used to always put out, I used to always put out three only and then they would have another 
50 downstairs in the basement. So you'd get a queue outside and people would come and you'd, they'd be very cheap, about you know, £100 or £60 for a three-piece suite. You didn't really become involved in the live music scene until 1982. So where originally did the love of music come from with you? Well, I always had the love of music. I mean, it came from the, it actually comes from my mother's side, the Barrys. John Barry, my grandfather, uh, he was a, he came from Kill. He was a, he, a, he was a songwriter. Uh, he wrote lots of songs. He, he, my grandmother used to always accuse him of not working. He didn't work a day in his life, but he considered writing songs and singing songs and doing stuff like that as work. He was a great artist as well. Uh, he, uh, he would paint people's walls and stuff, and he, he worked and killed around. The, he worked with all the farmers and doing stuff in around the houses, but he didn't have a regular job. It's a bit like myself, really. But uh, so the music was. He he would play the fiddle when we were kids, but he would never let us see him play it. He would play it in the back room. I remember sitting outside the door, outside the door of his bedroom in Kilt, and he would play the fiddle, but he wouldn't let you in. So you'd have to just put your ear to the door. And uh, it was eccentric, to say the least, I think. But uh, uh, That's what I remember of him. But I guess it just come, my earliest was would be the 60s, when, early 60s, 50s, when the show band scene was around. And Waterford had uh, quite a few show bands. And with a friend of mine, which I went to school with in, in Dungarvan, in the tech, his name was Shamie O'Brien. He, he started a band, and I, I started helping them then to move the gear around just before I came to England. So I loved music then. And as I got money, I just bought albums, and then I started going to Nashville just to hang out there. And I, I really liked the music. It was sort of old country music would have been. It wouldn't have been like the new country music today. It was a bit more honky-tonk. And uh, I was back and forward to Nashville. I was buying albums and stuff. And I decided then one night in there, I was drinking Budweiser, which never had Budweiser in, in the UK. I decided that's it. I, I, that would be 80, 81. 80, 80, 81 it would have been when I was, I decided that's it. I'm going to. So I took a, photographs of this place I was in. It was a spit and sword. It was just like the mean fiddler, really. I mean, because that's what I copied it from. It, I copied it from this place in Nashville. It had bricks and sawdust on the floor, and uh, people were happy drinking. Just, the beer was cold. You couldn't get cold beer in those days. You'd get a pint of beer, but it was sort of lukewarm. <laughs> but Like Budweiser, frozen cold, long neck. That was what uh, was nice. And so, you know, I just, uh, that's it. I was in my head, so I come back, and I, I said to a friend of mine, is it? architect, an Irish architect. I said, I want to create this. I showed him all the pictures and he said, you better find a place. So I found a place in Harleston, which was a bit naive, but it was an old, it was an old drinking club, and, but it had been a cinema before. And I tried to buy that. I tried to buy it, but it was, it didn't have a license. It was a club. So I tried to get a license. Anyway, eventually I, I got it. I bought it. I had some money. I bought the freehold and um, opened it. And we opened it on the 9th of December 82. And then it was, it was a, a copy of the, uh, a copy of what I saw in Nashville. It was country music. It was what I liked. It was, but I think they're a Scottish country band. I can't remember the first night. But anyway, it was like, okay, for the first year, I brought stuff in that was like a bit, Obscure in Harleston. I don't know if you know Harleston, but you know, it was, it was the most unlikely place to see a honky-tonk. So it sort of survived on the, on all the American Air Force bases, which we would get 
take sense people from different places in Air Force bases around Oxford. They would come in on one Saturday night and every month. That was really good. It was a bit weird in house and we'd, you, know, you got six foot six blocks with big hats on. Big. That was a, it lasted for a while and then it got into, you know, I had to sort of make, start thinking, well, it's not, this is not a hobby anymore. I've, uh, I was selling my, I've sold most of the furniture business. And I was finding it for the first year it was a disaster. So we got to 83. 83, 84, started to, I started to change. 85, we got better. And then bands like the Pogues and a huge, just a huge amount of bands came along, like the Pixies. And then it, t- it took off. Because then I thought, okay, I've got to make a business of this now. It, it may, um, it's costing a lot of money. So I remember the bank manager telling me, you had a good business, Vincent. Why didn't you actually just stick to what you know what you're doing? He <laughs> <laughs> was a nice man, but I used to remind, every time I went to some do or something after, I said, I said Maurice, do you remember when you told me that I should stick to what I, what I knew? And uh, that's when the main fiddler was really doing well. Just going back to when the main fiddler opened, the name was in honour of your grandfather. The same grandfather. Mm-hmm. The man that wouldn't let us see him play the fiddle. And uh, we were... We'd finished the job about uh, two weeks before the, the place opened, and we didn't have a name. So all we went, we used to go. To, I used to pay the, all the, the builders and stuff in the pub, in Kilburn, meet them all, and pay them on a Friday night. And they said, I mean, Nace, which was the the foreman there, he was a man from uh, Dundalk. He said to me, "Vince, you haven't got a name still." And I said, "Well, we we all started talking about names for about ten minutes." And I said, "Well, why don't we just call it at the end?" I said, "Why don't we just call it the Mean Fiddler?" And that's what we did. And, you know, the first year, people said, why don't you change the name? And I used to say, why don't you, whatever, off. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the Mean Fiddler now, you know, when, you, when, I, when I go to New York, I see a place called the Mean Fiddler, which is not like a, a live music place. But the Mean Fiddler is, is named, there's, I think there's four Mean Fiddlers in Australia. There's a couple in New York. There's one in New Zealand. Of that time, in the sort of late eighties, a lot of a lot of Irish, a lot of Australians, it became very famous for an, as an Irish place. But it had it had sort of a lot of other acts as well. We've done we we at that time I didn't have any. There was no sort of restrictions about what I put on. We had band, every every type of band, and people seemed to like it. I mean, Johnny Cash came there very early uh, in the eighties. Roy Oberson played there in 1987. Uh, we had everybody there. Like it was Paul McCartney played it twice. All the Irish bands played it from Christy Moore to Elvis Costello, Van Morrison. It was just like, it was, and then I, we were doing so well, I got another place, which was the second place. It was a place called the Powerhouse. It was in Islington. That did well. I think it, uh, Stone Roses opened it. In the right order, I think the powerhouse, and then the next one would have been Subterranea, which I opened in '89, uh, uh, which was the same year we did started to do Ready. Uh, Subterranea opened uh, with a band called the Butthole Surfers, which were they definitely took the cobwebs out of the place. <laughs> the first night they bust them, I didn't realize, but they blew up the whole system because they were so they were so loud. And it didn't matter how loud they were; it was just the fact that the system couldn't so. That was a learning curve. I had to get a new new PA system the following weekend. But that was the weekend of Reading, which was when you think about it, it's hilarious to actually try and do. I've never done a I've never done a festival before, 
and we were doing Reading, which was three nights, and we were also opening this venue. So we had a bill of Reading, which was the, the headliners was New Order, uh, the Pogues, I think, were there, and and Wonder Stuff was the other headliner. We did really well that weekend. I mean, it was, it was all very naive again when you look back on it, but we got it right second, third year. It looked, I mean, you know, it... So everybody played Reading. We did it for uh, 89 to, to 2000. And I can't remember, actually, but it was like many years. Tell me this, you've name-checked the Pogues there a number of times playing in both the Mean Fiddler and at Reading. Shane is obviously one of your most loyal acts that you continue to book. You've even got him for the Fesh this year in Liverpool. How did you come about to meet Shane and the lads? And any kind of outstanding memories of those days? Well, it was very, very rememberable because it was on a Friday night, the Pogues the Pogues came and played the Mean Fiddler and it was just a time when, when the change was coming. It was going from being a country night to being sort of a, a, any, where different genres of music were played. And I remember we still had our resident country DJ and he actually resigned publicly when the, when, when the Pogues came and we, we'd sold out and the place was buzzing and it was, it was a different feeling there. And he had, the Pogues had sound checked and he actually put on, he put up the mic and he just made an announcement and, Everybody cheered. He said, "I'm leaving this. This is not country anymore. This this doesn't need my this doesn't need my respect and attention anymore." So it was a big cheer, and that was the beginning of the new the new era. So that was on a Friday night, and everything did well. The bars did well. Uh, we, I think, the f- money I gave the Pogues then they weren't they weren't famous then, but they, they, were, they had a big following in, in Northwest London. I think it was twenty five pound. Wow, which was not a lot of money then. I mean, not a lot of money then, not a lot of money now. <laughs> so, uh, and that was fantastic. And that was the first time I met Shane. And then, you know, I did the following year after Reading. We, then I realized I can do this festival now. I know we changed the festival a lot. How did you Reading. become involved with the Reading Festival? It went broke. It went broke. So, uh, Harold Pendleton, which is not around any longer, he had Reading Festival. West Wedding Festival for, for, from its existence. But he'd lost interest in it and it was going down and going down. It was going down the hill and, you know, it, it became very uh, much a festival for... It just lost its way, really. There was nobody interested in it and he just went broke in the end. Well, he didn't personally go broke, but the festival went broke. So he, was, he tried several other promoters, but nobody was interested. And uh, I remember I had a very good booker called Dave, David Phillips which was a real good music man. He said, like, we can do this. And I said, yeah, we can do it. So we went up and saw him and we'd done a deal with him. And I took it over. And then I went. So now I've got the festival, i got no act. So I, about six months before the, the event. So in those days as well, you didn't put shows on a year in advance. I remember now, now you, everything goes up a year in advance. But we were six months into it. And I went, somebody said that New Order might come out. So I got hold of Rob from New Order with the manager and he said uh, where are you and I said I'm in London he said well come come and see us and, and I went to Manchester and I went to his house and the New Order were there uh, and they were around the table he said what makes you think you can do a festival rating festival I said well I've got the festival and I've got I've got money to offer he said how much will you pay and I said I will pay you a hundred grand to headline it they hadn't been out they hadn't been out for quite a while so it would have been a big a big plus if I had got him, but I did get him. But uh, I knew that if I get them, then it would be easier 
to book it because the other agents would say, well, who have you got? So I got him after a lot of chatting around the table and uh, I came back on the train and I started calling agents and they said, uh, who have you got? And I said, as I said, I've got a new order. And they said, well, have you? I said, yeah. I, so I confirmed it. And uh, then that's how everything started. I, it was easy then to put X around new order. And so the next actor, we, the wonder stuff were big in those days. So I got the wonder stuff. And I got, then I got the Pogues. And the Pogues, the Pogues played it. And they were, they were headlining. And in those days, Mary Coughlin was bigger. Remember, she was fifth on the bill on the main stage. Really, so she's, she's my friend. She was a, and I can't remember the other acts, but there was, there was a whole, we had this multiple stage thing. We, we changed the whole thing. We did multiple changeovers. We did quick changeovers, so rolling rises. Brought in all that thing into live festivals, which are quite normal now. But Reading Festival was the one to have, was the first festival to have uh, things like quick 15-minute changeovers and multiple stages. Given the festival lineups can be so far-reaching, you mentioned uh, you had some help there. What would you base your booking policy on? Because nowadays it's all social media and streams. Back then, was it purely sales and media coverage, or did some personal taste play a role in it as well? Oh, I like that band. I know they're good, so I'll book them. Well, I had a young, and by that time we had a big staff. We had a young, young crowd around us. Like, so I, I was, I didn't know everything, but I was, I was the one that made this final decision because it was my responsibility. But I think the way it was looked at then, there was still, the, the facts were there, the stats were there. Like, what the band doing? How much you can find out by, you know, those melody maker, NME sounds, all those magazines you go through. Uh, you'd know, you'd, you'd know what the album sales were. You'd know what the vinyl was. You'd know the same, but it's just. It's much more instant now. So it's the same. Don't you change apart from it's a better system now. I think it's like easier and better to get to reach anything. So we would know and we would have discussions around and we'd decide, okay, we're going to go for this one. And then by that time, once we got into the third and fourth year, it became uh, it became sort of you were then considered successful. So you then had the another issue of like agents trying to make you decide to take their act. And then you'd have to say, no, yeah, we like this. So you have to keep the independence. So I think that went up to 2092 when we, 93, I lost the festival because Harold Pendleton decided then that he wanted to go back on the deal. So we had a big battle about that. And so he got the festival back for one year. And I got it back again by pure coincidence on 93, which was my happiest day of, the, of <laughs> my life. I still remember the day when I, when I, he, it was a year that we booked Nirvana, but I never actually, we never actually ran it because he kicked us out. And uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't, I took his word for it, I hadn't actually put my name onto the, onto the lease of the land. And we had an agreement, but... However, you know, I actually started then a festival called The Phoenix. And that's how The Phoenix came, that means rising from the ashes again. So, you know... It was a huge determination and anger there to get on and do it. And I did the Phoenix, which was fantastic, really. I mean, the Phoenix was a great festival. It just, you know, just I believe it ran into some issues in its first year, that there were problems at the gate and in the camps. There was, there was problems everywhere. It was a, it was, we were out in a really nice site, Shakespeare. It, it, it ran into between uh, New Age travellers and <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. But that was... 80, uh, 85 to 84, 85, but 86, 86 was a great year. I remember 86 with 
come to it come to, I thought it come to this fruition it was great it was really uh, we had Bowie and we had Neil Young and we had Underworld and we had seven stages I mean we had a circus on there the Chinese state circus I remember we had everything there it was a massive festival and we still had we had now had Reading back we had a grand old time <laughs> yeah I know but also then we had, we had lots of different venues as well we were a big organisation then we had the extreme sports festival I don't know what year that was but I was going through tonight to sort of look at the things that, uh, and you know, when you look back on it, it's not, I think, well, God, I'd forgotten I did that. <laughs> and uh, it's like. Extreme sports in the middle of the 90s. You were very much ahead of your time, sir. Well, just buying stuff, you know, it's just pe- people said, look, you can get hold of this festival. And there's some, there was a young crowd of people doing it and it looked very good and said, yeah, this looks good. And there's some music and sports together. Uh, and that was down the country near Wales somewhere. We ran that for three years and sold it to somebody. I didn't keep that. We just spoke about the Phoenix there and the troubles it experienced in its first year. That didn't deter you at all from trying it again for another go no, round. No, no. We, that was a that was a, a horrendous period when it comes to like uh, when you hear uh, it's a bit like a war when you, you had all this steel fencing all the way around and then you hear everybody when you hear hundreds of people banging on the fence when they're getting it, getting in and the police won't give you a hand and you're just holding out there. It's like it is. You think, well, you know, but we had we had good we had good people around, good staff. We had um, Melvin Ben was the main man there. He was like the main man who was looking after the sites, and you know he was a mean fiddler partner then in those days. So he did well. He did well uh, with looking after, dealing with the police. But the police weren't always interested unless there was some serious stuff going on. And when you have a crowd like that, it's very hard to move them. So the place was the stretch of the name and the roads were chaos. I remember leaving the site at six in the morning and people had abandoned their cars. They couldn't get past because mothers coming back from school that previous afternoon had left their cars on the side road. Side, and because they couldn't actually uh, get past because the new age travellers had come all the way from Cornwall and blocked the road because I wouldn't let them in. And the police said to me, if you don't let me, I'll arrest you. Well, you got to arrest me, he said, because you can't, I can't let him in, because if you let him in, there's going to be worse trouble inside. So we had a standoff until like four in the morning, but then the police helicopters came, big police, big vehicles, shifting vehicles, came to shift vehicles, and it was chaos. Uh, eventually, early in the morning, the whole thing was, they, the, the new age travelers actually were quite clever, because when they saw that their, their vehicles were definitely going to be confiscated, confiscated, taken away <laughs> confiscated yeah uh, they they just got into them and drove them off because they were well in use they were well experienced so but the, the road was a little bit rubbish and stuff I remember that clearly that well you know getting going get home at six in the morning getting into getting into bed in the hotel and coming back out again at 11 that same year was the year you brought it on home another festival which suffered greatly uh, due to lack of ticket sales this time the Flamore in the not too distant <laughs> Tremor here in County Waterford the lineup in hindsight was amazing Bob Dylan, Ray Amazing, Charles, yeah. Christy Moore. Why didn't it work? Well, I did two reasons, really. It was, uh, I mean, we can find plenty of reasons. And the actual honest reason is I don't really, really know. But I can, like, have a go at answering your question. I think it didn't work because it was just, that if you look at the roads now in Ireland, I don't think many people could come from Dublin. We just didn't have the infrastructure for such a big festival. You know, it was like, it was, it was huge. 
and it was a huge cost and it just you know I remember in those days in 93 well if you got behind a milk lorry going from Waterford to, to Dublin or whatever you you take you four to five hours to get to Dublin it just didn't have the infrastructure and it also I don't think it had here was somebody new coming in even though I was from here I was just I think someone in my head that was trying to prove to somebody somewhere that I, I can do this at home and look look what I've done but you know of course I did and I did it it was a great festival which was a financial disaster to the tune of a million quid I believe probably plus I mean I always called it a million but it was, it was uh, I had a company with me then there was partners and it was called the Walker's Beer Company they were a sort of union based uh, outfit good good outfit of people uh, so they were they were partners and they just they sort of took an instant dislike to me because <laughs> they'd never seen so much losses I remember going back on, on the Olingus flight and thinking, okay, now I've got, I'm in serious trouble because there's a big hole to fill here. And, uh, I, you know, I thought, what shall I do? So I forward sold ticket sales to Ticketmaster, it was called then, Ticketmaster, and they gave me an advance of something like two million. So we were fine again. So, but then I was tied into them for some years. And because we sold a lot of beer in the venues, we, we could always get money from breweries like Carlsberg, and you know we we had we had a lot of we had a lot of uh, stuff like we had lots of places, and we could we could always get cash flow, and we we started going. But it was a, it was a lesson. I don't know if I learned it, but you know it was a lesson. I believe at that Flammore, there's a fantastic Bob Dylan story involving some water for Crystal. Yes, yeah, there is actually. There was a, the Waterford Depreciation Society, which they let me know they were, and they were like men, and would be Bob's age, whatever age Bob was then, in the 50s or whatever. Uh, they said to me, look, we they meet up every month to just talk about Bob and play his music, and I don't know if they, they've probably seen him somewhere else, but he's, they've never definitely seen him in Waterford, probably never again see him in Waterford. Well, they've been killed Kenny soon enough, so that's <laughs> yeah, close enough for them. Get him to come over. They said to me, will you, We've got this piece of glass and we want to make a presentation to him. And so I, I said, he's not that kind of bloke, you know, he won't do it. And then they kept on saying to me, look, come on, we've been here. We, like, we, they see it from a different point. He, look, we're, we're big fans of his. He didn't ask him to be fans, but of course, I guess the artist owes something to the, to the client or whatever you call him, the fan. Eventually, I got Jeff Kramer, which is the manager. I said, Jeff, they just want to give it. It'll take two seconds. He eventually agreed and... They're all lined up against. They're coming out. They're coming out of his um, dressing room. They were lined up there, and there's there's probably twelve of them. And he he walked out, and they, the, the principal chairman of the association or whatever presented him. He said, "Bob, thank you so much for everything." And he said, "Thank you," and walked away. And they said, "Is that it?" To me, I said, "I'm afraid so." <laughs> he just closed the door again. He was like about two meters away from the the door of the of the porter cabin. And uh, and they were just they, they, for seconds they just stopped and they didn't move. <laughs> they just well, he's not going to come out again. You better wait to see him on the uh, on the stage. Elusive as ever. This stage now we're kind of more or less into the mid nineties. How many festivals and venues did you have under your control at that stage? Which estimate? I think we had twenty seven venues. We had uh, I bought venues then and I had restaurants as well. I at one time I counted between pizza places and uh, I bought a place from Giorgio Locatelli which is a very famous chef and a friend of mine. We uh, bought a pizza place in Wardour Street which was fantastic. It made me fatter than I was. I don't know but then I sold that as well. 
Uh, and then I got into gay bars. I started buying, I started GAY bars. There was a GAY in about Astoria, which was where you two played and the Rolling Stones, they, they played it whilst I did own it. So uh, it was nice. It was good. I, I to answer your question, I, I had seven restaurants, uh, 27 venues, outside venues, and six six festivals. Wow. So, so at any one time, maybe six to eight, but we had, we started Tribal Gathering, which was the first legal festival in the UK. Um, that's when Margaret Thatcher closed down the, all the raves. That's when you'd go to the petrol stations and you get, you'd, on your bleeper would come, uh, would come the, the, tell you where to go, where, where it all is at. Underneath motorways and things yeah, like yeah. that. Did yeah. you ever any? Did you ever attend any as market research? No, I didn't actually. I didn't do any, but uh, we had an idea that was, uh, there was a lot of publicity at the time because it was all shut down because what they could, if you got in on the site, it took two weeks then to get rid of you then. It would be a law because you had to go to a proper court procedure, but Margaret Thatcher changed the law that you can get rid of, get rid of you right away and confiscate the equipment. So that, that killed it right away. So we went back to the councils and, and we applied for a license in a place called Otmore Park in Oxford to do the first tribal gathering. That would have been a place called Otmore Park and that was fantastic. We got the license. We did 40,000. I can't remember the bill at the moment, but it was great. It went all night, but of course, the neighbours didn't realise what they were getting into, so we never went back there. <laughs> so we went to another site, a place called Luton Hoos, a big house in Luton on the motorway. A big old stately home. And that lasted for uh, about three or four years. And I uh, don't know why that closed. I think the house was sold. And then we, we started Homelands, which was in Winchester Bowl. And Homelands lasted for sort of five years. Uh, don't know what happened to that. I don't know what age, what year I'm up to now, but... I think you're around about 99. If it coincided with the Irish edition, the first one was in 1999. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later, but first I want to ask you, you're talking like the mid-90s, Britpop had exploded, Liam Noel, Damon Alburn, they were all the biggest names in music. It's quite a hedonistic time, but you didn't live the hedonistic lifestyle to go along with it that many would assume would be befitting of a massive festival promoter. No, I was never, I was never the popular one in the, in the business. I think agents hated me because when I started it was quite difficult to get through to I didn't understand the business as, as that there was a certain sort of etiquette that you didn't ever approach the manager or the actual band you know but I if I just felt that it was a little bit of cronyism and it was very small at the time and there was certain promoters that would be there and they would get they would all get the backs and I couldn't break in so but I just kept on hassling at it and uh, in fairness the first person that actually gave me would be Bob Dylan, Jeff Kramer, because I, I, I used to call him, I got his number, I used to call him when he was driving from different state to state in America, just, and he had plenty of time to talk to somebody. So. How did you manage to get the number? I got the number from somebody who, who did some work for him, the <laughs> stage manager. I love the hustle. And uh, he said, who are you? And he said, well, you call me every night. I said, yeah, because I'm up in Europe. Was, I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm driving to whatever, whatever place. And then, He'd say, well, I said, well, your agent won't talk to me. And I've got, I've actually got the money. I've got the venue and I want to put on Bob Dylan. And he kept on hearing this. I, I wouldn't generally hassle him. I would talk to him and he wouldn't mind talking about what are you doing? I said, well, we've had all these bands. We've got all these bands in the, in the mean fiddler and stuff. And uh, 
eventually he said he's sent a, a a fax to Barry Dickens from ITV, which is the biggest one of the biggest agents, and a nice man said, "Barry, why don't you deal with this bloke? He's he seems to never leave me alone. He has the, he has he has the money, so the, why don't you?" So Barry rang me for the first time ever, really. I couldn't get him. I did got him a few times, but he said, "Look, I don't like you." But he said, I've been told to deal with you. So we met up and uh, that was my first Bob Dylan. And he then gave me a lot of stuff because he had Neil Young and he had other bands like Simon, yeah, Simon, uh, Peter, Peter Gable, sorry. And we became friends. And then we, chat, we chatted one day and we realized why we didn't get on because we had, uh, we had the same birthday. <laughs> so two Tauruses. And uh, we've been friends ever since. We, I did fall out of them once when... Uh, the madness, going back to the madness thing, madness concerts we did. We brought madness back and put them on Finsbury Park for two shows, I think it was originally. Finsbury Park holds a special place in your heart. I want to just roll back the clock a little bit. The Fla, obviously coming from Irish origin, you would have spotted there was a huge gap in the market there and a London Irish crowd who were hungry for music. Did you find it was much of a challenge in those days to put something like that on? Were you worried that it might not have gotten the reception that you hoped it would have? Well, I had I had no doubt after doing Reading because I did it. I did it the year after Reading. I thought, okay, I can do a festival now. I know what I'm doing, and uh, but I think at that time it was, it was although it wasn't it wasn't huge, but it was a hostile. It was like troubled times, and the police were a pain because they just they thought there was going to be a war there. They they put uh, lots of people around the place, like hiding. They put cameras in the trees. Uh, it was. A bit hostile, you know. So, of course, I found the gap. I think the gap I found was that there was there was music there. You'd get people like uh, acts coming to the Albert Hall and stuff, but you get no contemporary music acts that Irish. But you'd get the show bands, and you get so there wasn't any. I didn't. There wasn't any many acts that were representative of, of the, the younger Irish, and uh, so that's what that's what uh, the idea of the flowers. Uh, I forget the lineup on the on the first year, but we put it together and it was fantastic. But it was different days then. There was no pre-selling. It was pre-selling. Yeah, we were telephone selling, telephone calls. But we had a and licensing laws only went three. So Sunday it was on a Sunday, and three o'clock, the pubs were full till three o'clock in local Finsbury Park. And then I remember well, we were totally shocked. We did something like. Uh, 18,000 walk up and all I had I just had everybody I could find that worked with the mean fiddler everybody taking money on the door just letting people into like, and we had something I don't know we only had about 4,000 or something in which were pre-sales and then all of a sudden the place and we were fantastic really I mean we just had I had my cashier she just we were just bucket full of cash of of, of uh, fivers and whatever that was good. That was the first year. That was 90. So then, yeah, we got it right, you know. We got it 91, which was good. 92. We did right up to, uh, then I did. We, we did a lot in Finsbury Park, really. That was the flowers. But. Something else you did in Finsbury Park in 96 was the, the first of the Sex Pistols comebacks. Yes. Yeah. That was quite a major coup because I imagine every promoter in the UK wanted that gig and that potential profit. How did you manage to swing such a, a massive reunion gig? Well, I had to, Proof that I could do it now. So and also, I always had the temptation. I could always like push out more 
more than most people. It promotes us in a sense because I was always I used to had I always have my own saying is like I keep one eye one iron till and one on the talent. <laughs> so the till being the bar till. So I could actually I could estimate if we get thirty thousand people in into Finsbury Park, which we did, we got thirty three thousand people for the for the uh, sex business because the sex business was difficult because they never really pulled that many pe- that many people. They were famous, but they weren't they weren't they, they didn't they weren't around for that long. Really, so they didn't. So anyway, yeah. So I could, I could always outbid, and this is what I was saying to Jeff Kramer. I said I can give Bob Dylan more money than you can get from your promoter because most promoters don't have bars; they give the bars to somebody else. But my business was built on bars to begin with, and I mean fiddler. So we knew what bars were all about, and what you can take from bars. You mentioned previously about doing uh, the gig for Madness Madstock. There's a, a great story about an employee being mugged. Of, you, uh, you've done your research here. I have. I thought you might miss that one. No, I love this story. <laughs> well, we were all ready to go. Basically, we, we'd, uh, we'd sold out Madness, which was, which was a huge success. We'd done two shows. We'd only, you know, I met Carl and Suggs in the pub with Neil O'Brien, which was one of my bookers with me, and we went to a pub in Camden and we said, we can do you. We can actually, I think, you know, you've done... You've done over 600,000 copies of Auto Madness, I think, with the album. Maybe it maybe wasn't, but I think that was the album. that That's what we were pitching to them. I think we can do one Finsbury Park. And I remember them saying, well, how much can you give us? I said, well, I, I'll give you 100 grand and we can do a percentage. So they agreed to do it. And then I put it on sale and they got nervous then because it got huge. Capital Radio was then sponsoring it. And it sold out in minutes, the first one. And so we did the second one, and it also sold out. And we had Morrissey, we had Morrissey supporting. So Morrissey was well into his solo career at this stage. The Smiths yes, were long yeah, gone, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. But okay. he, he was, Morrissey was like... Very great. popular. I, I love Morrissey. He's mm-hmm. like, I'll tell you a Hop Farm story on Morrissey. Okay. If you hope he's not listening to this one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to Hop Farm in a while, but definitely yeah. I want to hear about that. The Morrissey supporting, and uh, we, the main fiddler was where we all worked from. We, we had all the staff were in there, so... Eileen, which was my uh, main financial person, and she was the manager of, she was looking after the money. So we had to get a certain amount of cash out of the bank to actually uh, to do the bars, which was float for the bars and float for the box office, which was 60 grand. And we had we had bankers drafts, the madness sold out. So, you know, instead of getting 100 to 100,000, they got 410,000 really in the end. They did 33,000 a day. Wow. Uh, so their 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 share of the whole thing was four hundred and ten thousand. So we had all that ready. And that I I went home early. When I say early, eleven o'clock from the main fiddler to get up in the morning to be there at seven. And Eileen, in a lack of wisdom, she decided that I'll take the, the change home with me. And I'll take the bankers that told me so I won't have to come into the main fiddler in the morning and go straight from home. So anyway, she got mugged at the door. I was in sleep in bed. It was about twelve o'clock. And I heard this woman screaming, and I couldn't, because Eileen screamed, but like she'd screamed for about, it seemed like an hour, but for 30 seconds. I said, put the phone down and call me back. So she called me back and said, I've, I've been mugged. They've got my money, and they got the, they got everything in the bag, which was probably tickets and stuff as well. So there's one young bloke who mugged Eileen, and uh, police had no idea who it was, whatever. We never could, just, we never got any result on it. Eileen was totally, totally devastated. I mean, she's never got over it, really. It's still 
she cries today when I speak about it. <laughs> uh, so we had to deal with that. And so I went into the madness then, you know, they're North London, but they thought, no, we've been had here. You know, this is just this is, a setup. This is staying here. So, so I said to him, no, there's no way. There's no way. I said, look, uh, he said, we're not going on. I said, well, uh, I can't force you, but, you know, let's try if we can work something out. Then the agent came in at 10 in the morning. That was Barry Dickens. They got an agent because the thing got so successful and they got an agent and a manager. Look, Steve Fine, was a very nice guy. Anyway, we just, uh, they weren't going to go on. So I said, okay, I will give you 200 grand, I think it was. I'll give you 200 grand. I'll try and get 200 grand out of, out of all the cash flow and stuff we have in the venues. And I'll give you that. And then I will, by the second show, I'll get the money for you. But I didn't get the money by the second show because I had to wait until the banks opened to, to I cancel the bankers' drafts. Anyway, for that, they, they decided they would go on. So I went around to every pub that I knew in Kilburn and changed checks. Uh, they And I changed checks and asked them not to cash them until Monday or Tuesday. So the Crown in Cricklewood, the National in Kilburn, gave me sort of like 50 grand and stuff. But most of the people knew me, so it was fine. So we, we raised about 200 grand and gave it to them. That was the first day because I decided to go on. So the second day then... Did more or less the same, really. And but the second day we had all the money, then nearly all the money for them in cash, two big black bags, like bin bags, bin I believe. Bags, yeah, and um, we took a long time. They they wouldn't they wouldn't trust anybody, so they called Securica. Nobody's going to touch the bags. This was late in the night; it was raining. Everybody had gone home. We were all boating, sitting in the sitting in the porter cabin, waiting for Securica to come. I think they came about half twelve or something, or maybe one o'clock. Uh, they came straight into the middle of the field and the secure van sunk into the, into the mud. It was pretty muddy down. So, so then they had to call out for another one. And so eventually, like, you know, it's three in the morning, they took the money and then I dealt with the situation on Monday, which was difficult because the bank refused to actually uh, to give me the value of the actual, uh, to renew the value of the bankers' trust because he said, it's like cash. You, anybody can walk into a bank, in a foreign bank, and open the name with what's on there and they can cash those so we had a huge battle with Barclays and, and then I got some PR against the, bar, the bank and I think they caved in in the end uh, at this time we were like an, a week into it and everybody was screaming for the money uh, so I eventually uh, got the money got the bank the bank came in these were, these were our bank which we'd be with for a while uh, so I never found who did it and it was just an experience and the uh, I mean, I think Eileen still is upset about it. Tell me about your um, relationship with the Evis family in Glastonbury. I heard a story once secondhand that it was you who told Michael Evis that fences were the future for Glastonbury because his kind of free entry and, you know, kind of everyone's invited type thing just wasn't working at the time. Is that true? No, it's not. Well, it's, it's not lies. It's just, it's a, does it not interpret it in a different way? I mean, I, what happened was Michael... Again, I would think I was the last call. I think Live Nation at the time couldn't handle it. So Michael needed somebody. He was closed down by the, by the police. And they said, Michael, we're not going to issue a license to the council or the police because the place is overcrowded. It's dangerous. It got into situations where it wasn't, wasn't good being there. It just got out of hand. So he came to us, and it took, took a long time for us to agree. He used to come down to Paddington with his wife, I'd meet him in Paddington Station. We'd sit in the hotel and, and uh, 
we try and get a deal together. It took a few weeks and we finally got a deal together where we took it over. The running of all the Melvin, which was our main man, Melvin was very good at it. We come up with a plan that we need to get the place properly secured. So I did get credit for the fences, but I got I did a lot more than the fences. Of course. Right? So the company did, but you know, we put in fences which were a meter down and three meters up. So if you had to burrow in, the problem was people were burrowing in underneath. <laughs> so they, because the, the, the venue, the festival venue was like, I think we had fences eight miles. There was eight miles of fences around the site. And at the cost, of, I think the, the fence cost a million pounds. So that, I, once that was secure and we had that secure and I'd done the deal with Michael and, you know, he didn't like me there because I was just a new, of the new intrusion really and he, he was, and I did feel sorry for him and I, you know, but in the, in the end of the day, I think the the festival maybe would survive in another. Somebody else might have taken it, but it would have wouldn't have happened that year or the next year. So me and Michael get on well now, but he didn't never really like me being around because it's just you're going into somebody's very very private sort of festival, which is his. You know, Michael is a big star there. He still is a big star there, and. Uh, so we sold it in 2006, I think. But it worked well. I mean, we, we got rid of 95% of the problems and we ran it well. But I always got benefit from putting our fences up. There was a lot of, a lot of graffiti on, on the fences, like not saying nice things about me, which was quite nice, really. Do you think Michael wrote that, some of that himself? I don't think so. Michael actually, me and Michael get on well now. If you if admitted that, you, I think if Glastonbury had lapsed or if it didn't if if it didn't do anything for three or four years because of problems with the police, I think it'd be very hard to get it back. But we didn't. We went straight in and we got it back, and we got it up for the following year. Uh, it was, yeah. I mean, it was just one of these things which very big. And if you haven't got the infrastructure and the actual people behind it, then you you uh, Melvin had a very good, good, good head, lateral lateral thinking. He was a very good, very good man. At, putting sites together. I mean, he often said he should be employed but by, in, by the government and the army or something. He'd have sold out a lot of wars. He's like, we, he was very good at doing stuff and it, it always happened. By now, we're up to the late 90s and you've promoted gigs by some of your heroes across all your venues and festivals. You mentioned Johnny Cash earlier, Roy Orbison. Have you ever found the old adage to never meet your heroes in any way true? Or have you always found them kind of genial enough? Uh, I guess I didn't have too many heroes uh, in the way of like, I was never phased by anybody. I would never patronize people and say, oh my God, you were great. I mean, I've never told Van. And Van is the person that played more, Morrison is the person that's played more more than anybody else. He's your lucky charm, I've heard mentioned, that he opens many of your venues. <laughs> he, he never, he's never not opened a venue. I believe you didn't actually even get to share a conversation with Johnny Cash. There was some uh, incident with his wife or his wife's sister. Well, his wife's sister, I think her name is Mabel, is it Mabel? I don't, Mabel Cardner? I don't know, but his wife's sister decided that she would have get off stage. I mean, I think uh, Johnny might have been drinking, he'd come from Wembley, from the Country Music Festival in Wembley. That's how I got him. And he did a show after. It was great, he was great. But it was, there was a fa- an argument on stage and she stormed off and she ran out, ran out the alleyway down, down the high street and uh, that's not a good place to be on your own in those days. So uh, I sent the doorman after her to get her back and he took her back to the uh, hotel in, in Kensington. 
And I, I don't know what the row was about, but she didn't come back into the into the venue. But that that was a great night. That was a great, 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 great night. So because of this row, basically, Johnny just hightailed it straight after. Was that the case? Yeah, he left straight after. He didn't. Uh, the, the family. Were, I don't know what was going on. There's like it wasn't uh, privileged to it, but. We were just trying to, I didn't want anything to happen to anyone. So I guess it would be, I was happy that he was left the building. You know, he had played, he'd, he was very good. And that was a night to remember, really. You had a strong relationship with the late John Reynolds, even putting together Ireland's first dance music festival, which we previously talked about, Homelands. How did that come about? I assume, was it off the back of the UK one? And what are your memories of John? Well, it's, uh, it's sad actually coming back. And uh, when I came back into uh, to Dublin the other day, I, I always ring John up and we always have a coffee in the Grisham and talk about the people we loved and hated and things going on and stuff. Uh, it's really hard to say that he's gone, to see that he's gone. But my relationship with John was the early days, you know, when the Mean Fiddler in Dublin opened. Before that, you know, John was, uh, John was a fan of the Mean Fiddlers. We, you know, he liked what we did and... Then I got Mean Fiddler. He helped me a lot to get in, in the Mean Fiddler in, in Dublin. Uh, we're just friends. You know, he was like, uh, he, he, John was way ahead of his time and the, the pod was such a such a place to go to when, uh, it's a long time ago now, but it was great. That was like, there's nothing, you had nothing, you hardly had nothing in London like that. Ireland's first super club almost to yes, an extent. I mean, it, was definitely, it was definitely Ireland's super club. There was not, that was fantastic. Going there and, uh, Spending, I, I loved my time in the pod. It was, it was fantastic. As well as John, what were your relationships like with your other promotional peers of your generation, the likes of Dennis Desmond and Jim Aiken? Was it a kind of a friendly competition or was it very dog-eat-dog back in the day? No, Jim Aiken was a different class. Jim was a great block. I never, we, me and Jim never had any clashes. Uh, me and Dennis had many clashes. Uh, was the flam more in competition with uh, with Fela, with the, with the trip to tip at one stage, I think, is that... No, it worked the other way around as far as I'm concerned. I, I thought about the actual flower first. I mean, Dennis did the, the failure in, not because of Tramore, he did the failure because he, he knew that I, I was doing this thing in Finsbury Park. So the failure was a copy of Finsbury Park, in my opinion. But then Dennis might say, no, Vince copied me, but, you know. This is all right, you know. I don't have any problem with him. He's a nice man. I'm sure yeah. there were quite a few furious phone calls over the years. <laughs> Yes, there was there was things I wouldn't ever like to talk about, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Then, uh, keeping it close to home, we spoke about the pod being one of Ireland's first super clubs. South was another. Oh yes, I mean you know, <laughs> were you disappointed yeah. that it had such a short shelf life? It but was because you know it's uh, it's just like we're just running too fast to catch up with ourselves. I think if, if, if you know what that means. It was a hell of a venue. Like, I DJed in it a number of times myself. It Just was, again, it was like everything we did, we did, I think we did good. We did perfectionist. We'd use the right people. The venue was fantastic. And going to see Paul Weller there that night and the place rocking. And we had, we just, uh, yeah, it saddens me to see that it's like a, a bit of, we lost a fortune at that place. But, no. It was very Hacienda-like inside yes. from what I've seen of yeah. pictures of the Hacienda. Was that yeah. what it was designed upon? Yes, it was. It, it was a uh, Sean Clarkson designed it. He was a he's a friend of mine. He was, he designed most of the places, the later latter places. Yeah, I would perfect venue really. Perfection doesn't always work. 
No, it doesn't, sadly. Uh, have you any thoughts on why maybe it didn't do as well as hoped? Do you think because of its placement of where it was in the country? No, I think it's just lack of it. There's lots of competition. It's very hard to get the acts uh, in because it, it, there was very few there was very few promoters in Ireland and they controlled everything. And uh, that was the way it was. It was difficult. And I never really did for other promoters. There was an attitude that other people shouldn't exist in the business we're in. So you just you just make a monopolize the whole thing and nobody else exists. So and the agents depend on one person. So I, I never understood that, to be honest. I mean, I, I was always happy to compete because I believed in ourselves. I believed in myself and the, and the company believed, my company believed in what we could do. We did prove to do it, but we, there was an element not just in this country, but in any country, really, the way they want to sort of stifle the competition. And it's a sad thing, and it's making the business smaller in a way, because you, know, you get you get exclusives now everywhere. Mm-hmm. Exclusive, a UK exclusive. We're doing a UK exclusive, sorry, but exclusive where it's like UK, the whole of it, down from John O'Groats up to uh, the furthest place up in Scotland. Uh, so, I don't know, it's... Uh, it's a sad thing. I mean, it, it, when you when you put your head above the parapet now, you actually sh- you picked up board Howard or shot or something. You don't, <laughs> you, you don't exist after that because they just they, they can throw money at stuff. And they, but it's 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 creativity is a. I'm doing something in a couple of weeks' time called creativity versus uh, capitalism and of the kind of like not so much putting on stuff just for the money. Rather than putting on something creative like, and the girl who's leading the the debate is the girl who put together with John a girl called Deborah Armstrong. She's a fantastic creative person. So there's a, this kind of conference thing in London soon, just discussing it with between like-minded folk. Yeah, I mean this is for and against. You know, I mean you, you shouldn't. I mean some people are happy to put on a. a an act and put it on in a in a tent or someplace and then just be happy with it. But you know, the mean fiddler was never like that. We never let it. We had to go further and think about we want to do it this way. You wanted it to be about the experience more so than just profit. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I never. Well, like again, it sounds corny, but I never thought about the money. <laughs> it was never my name. I was just passing through. You became involved in Benicassim in 2005. Was the festival already in operation before you took the reins? It was. It was a small fest. I'd been to it a few times. I think uh, Melvin had been to it as well. Because Melvin was my festival director. So, but there, by that time, I'd finished with Melvin. I'd sold, I'd done a deal with Live Nation. Um, and they bought everything. But And I had to sign a, 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 a non-compete for three years but I I think after realising I got quite a bit of money walked out of the main fiddler I had to leave everything I couldn't even take a, you know when, you, when you're when you in a public company you just walk out you don't even take the keys from you and you leave and I, you know I, that was that was kind of that was interesting in the sense that I was very sad I had I just was I just felt like I'd just uh, retired or whatever, like I can't do this. So 
That's when I went to I went to Spain because I obviously wouldn't I wasn't breaking the actual rules by going to Spain because the even though in a way they did intimate to me that well yeah but you got fifty five percent Irish and British get go to many scenes <laughs> well the Irish wasn't fifty five percent the Irish probably five percent but it was a huge UK festival so I went there and I spoke to the to the people there the two brothers had it and I said oh. I wanted to buy it and we'd done the deal and I kept him in for three years. I didn't want to go in there and like, because I think it would be a disaster if you went in there and said, like, get rid of all the people that run it. So I kept everybody and I worked with them. And uh, it was good, really good. We had, uh, had a good time and then I think along came the recession. I, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead now, but uh, we had a great time in Benicassim. Uh, what happened then? Yeah, I think uh, Dennis bought into it. That was good for a while. We were making good money. We brought the capacity up from like 25,000 to uh, something like 50,000, which was a great festival. It took fortunes and money and like beer and stuff. It was great, fantastic. Because it was a place where it didn't exist that they stopped. It was to go from like half five in the evening to seven in the morning. And the beach was right there. And it was crazy. It was fantastic. I remember. Not now, because bands are very busy now. So bands would never leave it. They would they would go in the backstage area. We had a with a pool, which wouldn't recommend to get into it after like ten o'clock leaving because it's like filthy with beers and everything into it. So the people I remember in the olden days, the Arctic Monkeys did Penny Casino several times, but they used to always end up having a good party in the back in the back uh, backstage guest area. But it doesn't happen anymore because the bands are out and there's so many festivals to do now. It's like they're gone. Half an hour in the dressing room and they're gone. Did you find that there was any new challenges uh, to putting on a festival in Spain compared to your time in the UK and Ireland? Was there anything that you didn't encounter over here that you would have there? Well, it's a lot. There's a language. <laughs> I never managed to... Uh, I had a whole staff of young Spanish and they could speak better English than myself. So I, I, so I, I tried to get somebody to... I a tutor that came to, to my place and teach me Spanish but uh, I was always like late nights and stuff so I never answered the door to her <laughs> so you know, my Spanish was like ordering I could order wine and say thank you and the important things basically and numbers that was <laughs> it so I'm still I'm still at that stage Hop Farm was another one of your endeavours we mentioned earlier it was a return to grassroots festivals devoid of large brand sponsorships was it tough as a result to find the money to pay huge fees to the likes of Prince because of the lack of sponsorship, no, it wasn't. Everybody said that sponsorship. The sponsorship is is a mis is a misunderstood in the sense that you think if you get sponsors, the sponsors pay for everything. But sponsors is is very little money compared with the cost of the uh, of the of the festival. So, uh, but I there was an era there where you look at festivals. I'm naming a few, but where the sponsorship got crazy or the representation of music got crazy. You know, I remember there's one festival that had was sponsored by Utterly Butterly. And it was like some sort of thing that wasn't butter, but it's supposed to be butter. And what does that got to do with it? You know, I mean, you could say drink has got something to do with it, but been sponsored by a brand, a brandy brand or whatever. But you know, there was no so sponsorship didn't kill off the hop farm. What came off the hop farm again is the is probably creativity, and you could have I could have done it with half the amount of acts on there, which would have mean half the budget, but we were just. And all the, all the festivals we've ever done has been like, uh, they've been great for the customer, but very sad for the bank. 
not all of them. I'm, of course, I'm just exaggerating. But, you know, if you look at the Hop Farm, which was fantastic lineups, you know, mm-hmm. from Lou Reed, Morrissey, the one, Patty Smith on the one bill, and the Kinks, uh, great, great Prince, Prince's Million Pound. I really shouldn't have done it. I think, I, mean, I don't regret it now, but from a business point of view, I shouldn't have done it because we had six weeks to sell it and I was chasing him and he was saying yes for about 18 months, but there was a problem with uh, with Dennis because Dennis had, a, this is what I believe anyway, what they told me. I'm sure if Dennis hears this, he'll come back and say that wasn't the situation, but, but I believe that Dennis had a, Prince didn't turn up to a gig in Dublin. and Dennis had, Park. Was it? Mm-hmm. So Prince had claimed and his manager claimed that it was never confirmed, but it went on sale. Anyway, I don't know. I either way, but so Prince wouldn't pay, so that way he couldn't actually do anything in in Europe because then the injunction would have taken the money, and that went down. That was a long time before he actually did the hop, hop farm. But I was the only one that was pursuing him all the time. So I told him I'd keep at it because if he, if something does happen, because he'll want to come back. And in the scheme of things, it wasn't a lot of money. But he, I don't know how much he owed Dennis, but they settled in the end. And he, that was six weeks before the event. Was your pursuit of Prince down to being a fan or because you saw the potential profit? It's just a knowledge of how, I mean, I, I couldn't be, I couldn't say that I was a big fan of Prince. I wouldn't have, I, would, I wouldn't have many albums or many, much music of Prince. But I, I, you know, he was just that iconic figure. And I, it's a bit like, I, would, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know everything about all the artists, but you know, I, I thought you know having Prince would be would be great. I I, I can't really say here yeah, I was a big fan of Prince's. Uh, I was a I was a fan of getting my own way. Did you bear witness to any of his eccentricity, or did you kind of tend to shy away and leave? Quite others? a bit actually. I mean, John helped. God rest John's soul. John helped me a lot on that night. I mean, because John put together Prince had a big bust up with with his with all his technical people that after the after the event. And so he went to, to Malahide Castle with with no tech. So I think it was Coderline's crew that actually, I'm sure it was Coderline that actually John got everybody from Coderline, all the, all the techs, all the guitar techs and everything. Prince was a, was a he was a master of like, he, he spent something like two hours, I remember hanging around in his, outside his dressing room. He spent two hours going through everything. Everything, everything was filmed. So he'd gone through everything. And he, when, he, when he came out, he sacked his manager, the manager, the day manager for their tour. He sacked the guitar techs. And this was, a, but to the, my year, this was a perfect show. People, were, I've never seen so many people cry. People were literally crying because he was so good. He was rolling around on the piano, on the grand piano when coming out, and he, he opened up uh, pretending it was a sound check. You know, he, he spent like half an hour just a second checking, but it was a, a very memorable night but he actually went he went away and uh, he wasn't happy I mean he did say I, I he was coming off the stage and I said to him thank you and he said he looked around he went to the bottom of the stage said looked up and he said no thank you and that's the last day I, I didn't speak to him then after that I just waited until he left and that was two hours after and he, then everybody left but I had had the opportunity of going back with the band because they stayed in the same hotel as what I did so I got lift back to the hotel with the band which was an old old female band and, and uh, that was interesting listening to their, their, their sort of chats 
which I won't mention what they were, but you know, <laughs> it was an interesting thing stuck in there with, with uh, I don't know, about five, six women, uh, with, uh, which are great, great musicians. What are some of the stranger demands you've dealt with from acts over the years? Not really strange, not, I don't, I can't really, uh, I can't remember any real strange. I mean, I remember, I think it was the Chili Peppers, but, uh, I'm sure it was the Chili Peppers that they wanted a full-size gym backstage at Reading. And they did get it because, and it cost them like to build it, probably plus 20 grand in those days. And they never used it, never went inside it. Uh, there was a strange, strange happening. I wouldn't say it was a, a ride out. I remember one artist wanted to be, came in on a balloon or something, he's dropped and he wanted to land backstage, but they got it wrong. So he landed in the campsite. That was funny. I forget, it was an old rock band, but they said, so then go and get a buggy to pick him up and take him from. So it, the whole spectacular thing of looking up to see him coming in, it didn't work. Any experiences with David Bowie? He played for you at the Phoenix, I believe, did he? He did, yeah. No, I had no experiences with really, Pop and Defector. He was great. I didn't, uh, uh, there was no, it was just, it was just, yeah, I don't really, I mean, I think I don't uh, hang around acts and patronize people. I think this, this has helped my existence with artists what I don't do is I go, go around and pretend you're their friend because you know they're not your friend you're doing a business deal if you offend you would actually they would invite you out I mean I do have friends I mean I I would say Christy Moore was a friend but it's gone back over the years but very few friends and artists I don't I, we do business whilst you may not spend a lot of time with them personally are there any acts that you've booked regularly that you will always make it a priority to get down and see them play if you're putting on a show with them regardless of any kind of backstage madness that's going on I always see the acts play as much as I can actually you know it doesn't matter whether it's a small act or a little act I mean I think uh, that's where you get the buzz you know when I in Nell I got a place called Nell's which is uh, named after Nell my daughter in West Kensington and it's 350 capacity it's where Van plays Van plays yet. That van has played there 25 times. Wow. Uh, 300. He, he did say on, in an interview on BBC that uh, he does it because he loves it, but he said, it's a shame Vince can't afford me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think what I pay Van wouldn't even pay for his band uh, to do, but he wants to do it because he, he's he got a good saying, so that I, uh, I, don't, I don't feel it. If he feels it in the place, he loves it. You know, he, if he goes to a big place, generally... He's looking into the lights and it doesn't matter if there's 15,000 people there. He doesn't know. He's like what? It's like playing through a screen. And he loves it. He does love it. I mean, he loves the feedback of people. The intimacy of it. Yeah. 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 He's, he's, he's fantastic, really. He's got... I just... A friend of mine runs... A, I tell a side story, but a friend of mine runs a, a, a casino and there's this very rich Malaysian man who... Lost a lot of money, and he said, Vince, I want to treat this bloke because he's a big van fan, and he's just dropped a lot of money in the casino. And I knew the the bloke who run, ran the casino, and he said to me, do you think you could facilitate him and get him a table and get him the best of everything, and we'll cover the bill? So I got him everything. He got the best of, he had the best of champagne. He started giving out to the customers, to, the, to all the other people that, Hunters there, which they didn't mind. Anyway, he got drunk quite quick, and he got up and he shouted. He said, "I love you, Van. I love you, Van." And then Van looked over towards him like, with his glasses on, and 
he looked at the band and he started off, have I told you lately I love you? Now, I don't know whether it's coincidence or not, but he actually did that song and that's Malaysian man thought that it was for him. It's made his night. And then I got a phone call from them to say, like, we want to do a van for Mr. What's his name's party on the beach in Malaysia. And he'd fly a van over. And anyway, so he said to me, he would pay, pay, three, pay three million pounds. I said, this is great for me because I can get I can get paid out of this now because I, I, I become an agent. So anyway, I went to Van with the, with the idea. That's what I like about Van. He said, no. So anybody who can turn down that, it wasn't so much, it was the fact that he doesn't feel that, he wouldn't do that. You know, and that's great. That's great admiration for Van in the sense that he just wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. It's not about the money. Speaking of rich businessmen and money, I believe you sold some property based on a coin toss once. <laughs> well, I'd, I went through a crazy period when I had money. Uh, like I got this, I fell out with my very good friend now, Alison, and the mother of my children. We were together for 16 years and uh, it was a bad old period really. So I, I bought this penthouse uh, in Paddington to Massive to 6,000 6, square feet and the roof garden was 6,000 square feet. I don't know what the actual flat was, but it was, I remember the kids used to play football along the corridor from end to end. But it was probably one of the most unhappiest times I had. I mean, I was in there playing the game of like, I had this uh, car called a GT40, which was like, I don't know, just, I love American cars. I still got an old Buick. I had a GT40 and I had, a, I had all, I've always had American cars. I believe you had a Cadillac and also a Lincoln yes, at one point. I've, I've still got the Lincoln. The Lincoln I bought when I met Alison. We were in a garage once and there was this, it was out near the American Air Force bases and we just bought it from uh, from the garage there. But I still got it. That's the only car I've got. I don't drive anymore, really. I just, I just go by Uber or Tube. But the coin toss? The coin toss came when I sold I sold that penthouse. I bought it for $1.8 million. And I sold it for a lot more. And he's, the bloke said to me, why didn't you toss for it? I said, I kept asking if you could toss. We could toss for like, a, I think it was three million. I think I sold it for three, for three million. And I said, no, I'm happy with what I got. It's fine. So I took him out for, for at a place called the Pagel Club, which is a very nice, uh, that was when I that was after the main fiddler. It was a very nice place in Piccadilly. Was, I'd always had this idea that have a room which was like 60s type, done like a sort of, uh, I don't know if you've seen a film, The Goodfellas? Mm-hmm, of yeah. course. So when the boss walks into the room and like that room is, it looks a bit dingy, but this wasn't dingy, this was a supper club. I took him down there for dinner with his, with his security man and his bank manager. He was a very rich man. We were drinking champagne, and I, I, he said to me, you never, you never wanted to toss a coin. And I said, well, because uh, I said, I'm happy. I don't need to. I don't need to. In the end, we were drinking away, drinking away. So I, I said, fine, okay. We cleared the table. I said, I'll toss you. He's got to fall on the table. And uh, I did. He lost. So he just a moment silent. He said, double up quiz. I said, no way. So I said, I'll tell you what I do. We changed the champagne. We were drinking more, so we started drinking uh, Don Perring or something. And then he uh, he paid. 
and you accept it. I believe the story when I read it was that you were selling for 3.3. Was it? And he said that, I think it was for the, the point three. So if the coin landed in his favour, he would get it for 3 million. And if it landed in your favour, you would get 3.6. Yeah, so that's three hundred true as well, actually. I mean, I, I actually honestly can't remember, but it could be 3.3. Uh, I know I sold it for double the money that I paid for it. And I had it for two years. What a great investment. Wow. It, was just, it, was, it wasn't planned investment. It was just fortunate, really, because the area came up now. He didn't do his yet. I guess the flat where he sold it for like eight million. Wow! So it's like you know, the next person probably buy it for ten. <laughs> Speaking of homes, what does Vince Power listen to at home? Do you listen to music much nowadays? Yeah, all the time. I listen to everything. You know, I'm into sort of sort of uh, New Orleans, sort of Cajun, French Cajun stuff at the moment, like obscure acts. Really. Was there ever a massive? temptation to sit back and retire after your massive sale to Clear Channel. £38 million sterling is a lot of money, Vince. What actually prompted you to sell up? The situation I was in, really, I got uh, get to a situation where my life was then so busy and we were, we were a public company and public company, you've got a lot of uh, reliability, uh, responsibilities and, you know, you're in theory, in reality, you're dealing with uh, shareholders' money. And it it wasn't as exciting because you we had a structure we had we had uh, you know financial controllers and which is not which is a good idea I think <laughs> but we it was just I spent too much time around the table talking in boardrooms I mean and I wasn't that kind of person I was more hands on and out there and doing stuff so and also my relationship was was breaking up and I needed to move so I would say it was a bit of both and a bit of like. I've gone as far as I can now with this. And at the moment, I don't have much uh, places, but I'm really happy. I'm as happy now as what I was when I had, whatever, 25 places, 27 places. And was there no temptation at the time at all to call it a day and just sit back and take all that money and go retire to somewhere sunny? Or would that have been a death sentence for you, do you think? It would be most of the death sentence. <laughs> that, would be, that would be horrendous. I don't know. I can't think of why I would want to do that. I've had so much fun and satisfaction. And, and you know, I think out there there's somebody that appreciates it. Well, when I get to the gates of whatever, I'll, uh, I will tell them what I've done and they might let me in. We spoke earlier about monopolies in the music business. Do you feel it's almost become too much of a monopoly now? The Clear Channel morphed into Live Nation. They got together with Ticketmaster. Independent promoter, being an independent promoter nowadays, at that level with them owning so much it must be quite frustrating because the venues are, are sewn up, the ticketing end is sewn up, and you're talking about like you know exclusives that they're being signed to, they're signing acts to. It, it must be quite tough, you know, uh, compared to how it was back when you first started out. It's different, completely different. I mean, the, the, the music industry has changed so much. There's so much. There's so much of a the, the live business have changed phenomenally uh, beyond recognition. Is so many acts out and the world has got smaller there's acts coming from all different countries like you can get Korean acts that will sell out the biggest place in London I, I don't know what I mean it's changed but the, I didn't worry about it is that it's a bit like having a sound system with uh, no mid and no bass you, you've only got the top and the top would be the big operator so you've got to have a, to have it all working well you do, the grassroots venues are very hard to keep alive that's route, like 200, 300 places where it starts, but where all the acts used to start. And 
you know, all those venues, they, they hardly exist in London now. They come and go because it's just too expensive and it doesn't work. And uh, it's not, I don't think the, I don't know how to put it, the playing field is not level with it. You know, I think you need to have those acts and uh, the, the big promoters are not really interested in them. You know, you get the, the sort of AEGs and Live Nations. I mean, they, they, they've got a business. For them, it's the business and it's perfectly, perfectly okay what they do. But I would be worried about the, you know, the, the roots of the business, which is it's neglected and it's it, a small promoters find it difficult. Uh, it's, it's a huge, huge uh, in, in the economy, the, the British economy, which I spend most of my time in. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a huge business there, that generation of money, but very little goes to the beginning of it, the whole thing. And yeah, it, it, it's definitely, in, I think it's in trouble that way because if, if, if the, the person who, goes to finish this college and they haven't got they haven't got anywhere to play with their mates and, and their friends then well it, they might just give up and get a proper job and who wants to do that yeah I know <laughs> <laughs> tell me about this return to your roots uh, the Fesh in Liverpool in true Vince Power style a very Irish orientated lineup, and uh, also a gap in the market yeah, well, it's always been, I mean, I realised since the first one, 1990, which was the flower, I can't use the flower anymore because that's now belonged to Live Nation. Uh, they claim, I don't know if you can actually own the word flower, but I don't want to argue about it. <laughs> so anyway. Luckily, we're Irish and we have quite a few words for a good party. Yeah, so we call this one fish. I was in Boston last week uh, looking at a fish site and they found it very difficult to pronounce fish. Really, in Boston? Yeah, but it's American Boston. Yeah, it's July sixth this year in Liverpool. Lineup packed. Yeah, it's just great. It's great, really. I mean, it's something. It's I haven't done a festival since uh, since the Hop Farm, uh, what I call a festival. So I just wanted to see that I could do it again, and it worked so well. Really, we booked too well, and I was we got certain things wrong, and we put our hands up and said, "Look, this won't happen again." Which like you can't run out of beer in an Irish festival. Oh my god! So we didn't run out until the latter hours of the night, but. That's almost worse. You're better off running out earlier when people are sober. Hmm. But anyway, that was it was it was a huge, huge uh, mistake. I think you know we didn't get the bars right, but uh, it was a new site, a difficult site. And but the idea, the question you asked was, why do you do it? It's like it's great, really. It's great. It's great to see to see the the talent and the, 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 the we had thirty thirty something acts on. And we did the finale, which I, that was an idea when I went for Shane's birthday party in Dublin. And he got, he did a, he did a review, a kind of review where everybody got up and did a song and Shane did some songs. And he had a, had a bass, a, bass, a backing band. So I did that with, with the, with the fish. And I, I had, uh, Sharon Shannon was the, was the actual, uh, band. And then people like, uh, we ran over time, so not everybody could go on. People like Damien got up, Damien Dempsey and uh, Paddy from the Chieftains and Mildred May got up and did a song and Shane did a couple of songs. Uh, it was fantastic. And so to sing along, really, sing in the sort of Galway Girl, Dirty Old Town and everybody, like, at that time, everybody was like, well, oiled. All the classics. Yeah. Not only have you had a hectic business life from a very young age, but also eight kids across 30 years. 
you're a busy man. Did you find it hard over the years to balance work and family life? Well, I think something has to give. I mean, I wouldn't say I was a, the perfect father that was home at the, at the grave. I mean, when in the early days, uh, with Morris, Sharon and Gail, which is my older kids, I mean, I got married, my mother and her mother, Teresa's mother, came to uh, to London and told us that we had to get married because I was going out with this very nice woman called Teresa Gill. And uh, it was it was then, uh, she was having a baby. We were get, got a pregnant, we got pregnant. And uh, I got married at the age of, I was just over 18. And we had one kid, two kids, and three kids. I think about 21. And I was then working as furniture, and I was busy, busy, busy. I mean, I, you know, looking back on it, I, I could have been a better father, I think, but I... I was materialistic. I was came. I come from Ireland, where you know it was, and we we had a very tough time in, as kids in in uh, in Kilmac Thomas. Uh, it wasn't uh, all like going. You know, we were poor. We were like we, we never we never wanted for food. But you know, we, it was tough. So I didn't have the skills of like I I thought materialistic things get get your kids everything get get uh, you family everything and that will be fine but of course you know but I've, I've learned as I went along and if I the next one would be perfect <laughs> not sure but I mean you know, I, I yes I think I could have done better to begin with but I was very young I mean my my plea your honor is that I you know I was young and I was like doing what I thought I what I thought was right but yes uh, I think uh, emotions weren't big apart from my mother emotions weren't big in our house You've only got your your mother and father. Uh, my mother was my father wasn't an emotional man. He didn't want to talk about problems. Uh, so you wouldn't you could never uh, you know you you have to you are what you what you come from. And, and that was the first. But I think uh, I've done better as I went as I got older. And uh, you know all my family are, we're all close. It hasn't been easy, but for them. But you know I I'm still there, and we're still there, and we we all now. You all get on okay. I've read that you've said you don't believe in inheritance and vow to spend your very last penny. How do the kids feel about that? Well, I think they they they, we, they know that. I think uh, the fact that it's in the press, uh, I, they probably I've probably told them fifty times. But you know, I think I've I've peaked too early. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm still alive, and, I, and the inheritance is gone. The so-called inheritance. So I think uh, I've been more than right. I, but for the next fortune, I probably definitely won't uh, leave anything. I don't think inherited money works, really. I believe some of your kids are very talented musicians as well. Yeah, Bridget never likes to think about it because she's done it on her own. Bridget, Bridget, Power, Bridget May Power is her name. And uh, she lives in Galway. And she's, but all the kids are, Nell is really talented as well. I mean, most of the kids are, they've got something in them. But, but uh, yeah, Bridget's done well. She's, uh, she's living in Galway and she's, She's married to a chap called Peter Broderick, which is a very good artist. He's American. Did you ever pick up an instrument yourself at any stage? <laughs> I used to play the accordion when I was a kid a little bit, but I mean, you know, it would, it would just drive it. When when the cat leaves the place, then you know that you're a bad player. <laughs> Did any of the kids follow you into the family business of promoting? No, no, no. 
but they have worked with me on and off with different things, maybe helping out festivals and stuff. And Alison, my ex-partner, she's works at festivals and stuff. You were awarded an honorary CBE in 2006. Do accolades like that hold much weight with you? Do you display the, the medal anywhere or is it just another one of those things in well, your I life? Don't, I've never displayed the medal. I couldn't, if you pay me a million pound, I couldn't tell you where it is now. But, you know, I did it because, and I my, I got into a lot of, there's a lot of talk about it when when it happened, especially on Irish radio. I don't know, an Irishman should be taking this. And I'm proudly, I'm an Irishman. I'm nothing else but an Irishman. But I, I, I asked my children whether I should take it or not. And then I, they said yes, because, you know, they were born in, in London and England. And, you know, so I decided to take it. Initially, I wasn't going to take it. I was going to say thank you, but I don't need it. I didn't actually, I think, to be honest with you, there's more deserving people for it. Uh, you know, what I did is I did it. I did it and enjoyed it. I wasn't really, I mean, I, did, I don't know what it was for. It, it might have been for my contribution to music business or, I don't know, I did a lot, during the Bosnian War, we did a lot of stuff, but that was done by other people as well, which could have, would have been more deserving. I mean, Cradle, which is a Irish, an Irish charity, I helped them when, during the Bosnian War, and we did, we, we helped a lot of uh, children from the war-torn areas, and that was very satisfying. You did a lot of work in Thailand as well after the tsunami. That's right, yes, we did. We uh, built, built some schools there and stuff. Um, but that's that's pleasure, really, to give giving back like that and to, be, to 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 help people and to see people. We did a self we did a self build project in. Uh, the war then was over, and we went to, we came to Albania because lot of the, all the dictators had fallen and chaos was around. So there was a lot of people who was coming into small towns with no homes and stuff and they're just living in squats and and so we we did a self-building a self-help project which worked very well where we got the families together and we the, the family most needy got built the first house and we we funded that you know it was it was great fun and great and it was a great great feeling to be able to give and help uh you know to this might be a bit of a, a complicated question for you. It's kind of almost like asking you which one of your children are your favourite. But out of all the shows that you've promoted over the years, are there any standouts that you can really kind of recall as being some of the best, at least memory-wise for you or on a personal level? It's a really difficult question because, you know, I could tell you a hundred, you know, Eminem, I could say, like, I, 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 guess, I guess Prince coming out at the Hop Farm was special. You know, I, I would never claim to be a huge Prince fan, but the whole thing, and it's not just about the music, it's about the, uh, it's about the night, the people, and they get it all right, everything was right for that night. Uh, it's, uh, that was, that was very special. I wouldn't say it was my, I couldn't say there was any one really special one. I mean, special for me is like watching other people being happy. Um, you know, I suppose, you know, couldn't claim to be a big fan of Princess, but I could claim to, I could claim that that was probably one of the special ones. How did you find Eminem to work with? He was great. I mean, we, we used to promote him in the early days. Um, he he did his first gig ever in the UK was at Subterranea. Uh, that was great. He was great. He was, he's, and he's still great. I mean, he's, he's a fantastic artist. Speaking of Hop Farm, you told me earlier you had a Morrissey story for me. Oh yeah, sorry. I, I was hoping you forgot that one. <laughs> Not uh, at all. 
Well, Morrissey said to me that he wouldn't play if there was any burger vans in the place. Oh, of course, because he's a staunch vegetarian. And he, he and also, I said that I wouldn't put Morrissey on if he didn't. He had this horrendous. I mean, obviously, it put you off meat, um, and I'm not a meat eater myself. I eat I eat fish, but anyway, I, I'm not judging anybody who eats or whatever meat or whatever they eat, whatever they want to. So, but anyway, he he said to me that he wouldn't play if there was anything to do with meat on the site. Could I have a vegetarian festival? And so I said to him, No, I can't have a vegetarian festival. But there was very little. There was very little, little meat on on the site, like meat wagons and stuff like burgers and sausages and all those things, you hot dogs and stuff. So the night, the night before it came on, we switched everything to the back of the site, and switched all the vegan and vegetarian up to the front. He co- comes out on the stage. He said. This is the most civilized festival I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> there was no whiff. There was no whiffs of um, of, uh, of anything. But he he said to me that he wouldn't show this gruesome video which used to run. And I said, "Listen, you know, there's people here that uh, that don't want that." And he said he they said it wouldn't run, but of course he didn't. He just went on and just was, was this. We had a big. The screen was like you know, twenty foot by by twenty foot, and there's this video of like. That certainly put you off meat, but you know I didn't want to sort of like there were people there that they weren't vegetarians, of course. How do you find Morrissey as a person? Because there's a great Noel Gallagher quote about Morrissey that he's as vicious sober as he is after a few drinks. Known for being quite a difficult artist at times as well. What was he like to work with? Who said that? Noel Gallagher said uh, <laughs> after partying with Morrissey uh, with Russell Brand in Hollywood. I think Noel Noel might be, be the one to say it. Noel is a I th- I couldn't really say. I mean, uh, he's always been really nice to me, and I've sat in his dressing room, and talked to him, and and he's always done stuff with me. I've, I've, he's always been really nice to me. I can't really say, apart from the fact when I when he agreed that he wasn't going to just run the video, but he did run it, and well, you know, I didn't comment on it with him. I he invited me into the dressing room after the show, which very rarely happens. I don't do it, but I went in and sat with him, and he was. You know, he was there talking about the show and he loved it and he thought it was great and he would come back any time. I, I haven't had a festival or a reason to invite him back. But, uh, I mean, people appreciate being left alone, getting on with it. I don't, we don't, don't patronise anybody. That's, we, I do my side and they do their side. If they want to speak to me, then it's fine. Any experiences with either of the aforementioned Gallagher brothers? Well, I love the Gallagher brothers. The Gallagher brothers. I mean, I love Noel and I know Noel and... Uh, and Liam well, and we did we did those big shows in Finsbury Park. We did four four shows in the nineties, four shows at forty thousand, and I think then one on then to New Neighbourhood after that. We did four shows at forty thousand in in uh, in Finsbury Park. I I I I used to do the the Irish uh, poster the, the the music side of the Irish post awards. In, in, in the Irish Post in its old format and uh, I gave an, an Irish award to the brothers Noel and Liam and he brought his mother mother to the awards and we uh, Noel did Liam didn't come that was she said that was her proudest moment ever she said first lastly firstly she really enjoyed it and the main thing to her was that she said it's the first time that they've been recognised as being Irish <laughs> <laughs> And she loved that because he went on, you know, on stage and he got the Irish Music Award. 
and that was nice. And finally, to wrap it up, I'm going to ask, you've been labelled with a lot of monikers over the years in the press. And well, you have King of the Festivals, the Festival Baron, and even a Svengali Irish gangster. Yes. How would you yourself like to be remembered? I don't want to be remembered at all because I'm not going anywhere. That's a fantastic answer. <laughs> How would you like yourself described to somebody who didn't know you? Well, I, I, I just like, I'm like yourself. I mean, I'm, it's just like, you know, we're just all the same, really. We've got different variations, but we're still, we walk, talk, eat, get upset. We're just the same. 